Happy New Year, Jordan. It is so freaking poggers to be podcasting with you again in 2021. <laughs> uh, Happy New Year, obviously. Um, poggers, though? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, do you, do you have a good break? Did you pet any good doggos? Oh, God. I hate, I hate when people say doggos. I'm so sorry. Like, papa. Oh, my goodness. Dog and pup, perfectly good words and quicker to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I kind of hate it too. But, you know, the fact remains that you have, you know, do you have a good New Year's Eve? Are you going to any percent run this new year? <laughs> well, like the whole of 21, just speed run through it. That might be the best way to cope with what this year is going to bring us, honestly. So as you can probably guess, I've been spending this break feeling old and thinking about how the internet is changing our language and the way we speak. Language has always changed, but it seems to be changing faster because of the internet and technology. So is this true or am I just getting older? Both. Both. Both is good, as the meme says, Joshua. Yeah. And here is some people who may or may not agree with you. (laughs) The internet has been a a revolution for language in the sense that it's offered new possibilities of communication that weren't there before. The internet gives us the ability to communicate with more people beyond our physical geographical location and lets information spread faster. That is David Crystal and Gretchen McCulloch, two expert linguists and authors and our guests for today's episode. They are going to help us navigate internet lingo and help us figure out Is it a language ruiner or a timeless and unavoidable phenomenon? The experts will break it down for us, and we'll talk about the origins of some popular internet slang. When we get back, the English language logs on and may never log off again. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech, a show about the strange Frankenstein's monster of technology and culture shambling through our lives. I'm Joshua Rivera. And I'm Jordan Erica Weber. I am the Frankenstein and Joshua is the monster. Let me paint you a picture, Jordan. It's the early 1980s. We're in Calgary, Alberta. It's cold because this is Calgary. And uh, a man named Wayne Pearson is typing three letters online for the first time. L-O-L. I think you're familiar with this one, right? <laughs> yes, uh, it clearly means lots of love, Joshua. Um, or uh, it's it's like it's laugh out loud, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one's everywhere, right? With a few exceptions, like you just said. <laughs> like everyone gets it. It's an example of what we might call like internet speak, which can be a phrase, it can be an acronym, or a word that was either born or popularized on the internet. Do you have any favorites? L-M-A-O, laughing my ass off or ass uh, for you over there. Uh, what else? Um, I never really liked ruffle because it sounded too fluffy. Yeah. Uh, funny funny thing about ruffle. Ruffle's actually fallen out of popularity. No one really uses it anymore. Probably because they feel the same way you do. So you're a, you're a tastemaker. <laughs> Good. Everyone should listen to me more. I have a friend who just types rekt, R-E-K-T. In all caps, when someone gets their like ass handed to them, but like only in a very minor and inconsequential way. It feels a little stupid talking about this stuff, right? <laughs> but uh, I also think it's fun. I mean, we're both writers and language is kind of easy to take for granted. It just sort of like works and you don't really account for the thousands of miracles that 
it takes to make it work. So talking to a linguist, and we've got two here today, just reminds you of how much magic there is and how we speak to one another. There are very obvious differences in the way we speak. And, (laughs) And like, sometimes it's fun to unpack that. But before we go any further, we should note, because this is an English language podcast, we're naturally going to discuss English. And because language is also culture, it's worth noting that a big part of how the internet influenced language comes from cultures borrowing from one another, sometimes in ways that are not particularly great or well-considered. We're mostly focusing on the tech angle here, as the cultural one is enough to fuel an entire podcast of its own. Yeah, and much as I would like to pitch that podcast personally, um, you'd be better off going to listen to The Allusionist, with an A, uh, by Helen Zaltzman. She talks about this kind of thing all the time. Um and, you know, talks about the conflict between loving the English language and also knowing that it has committed atrocities. So today I'm going to introduce you to two of my favorite interviews so far. The first is someone who has around 50 years of experience in linguistics and comes from your side of the pond, Jordan. Well, I'm David Crystal. Academically, I'm honorary professor of linguistics at the University of Bangor here in North Wales. Authorially, I spend most of my time at home, especially in lockdown, writing books about language and linguistics and the English language and, of course, aspects of the internet, too. He's here to give us an understanding of how the internet has impacted our language and the ways it has actually happened before. But first, he starts with something that's a little bit surprising. For all the words we don't know and our rapidly growing lexicon, the internet's impact on the English language is actually quite small. Not because there isn't a lot of change, but because the English language is so vast. Let's just stay with English for the moment. Uh, over the past uh, 20, 30 years, and sure, the internet has added, you know, several thousand new words and phrases to the English language. But heck, the English language has over a million words in it. Many more than that. Nobody knows how many. So an extra few thousand isn't a big deal as far as vocabulary is concerned. And then grammar. Oh, well, as far as I can tell, the grammatical constructions we were using back in 1990, just before the web came in, are exactly the same as the grammatical constructions you and I are using right now. According to Professor Crystal, this has had a side effect I'm sure you've seen before those who treat changes in the language as a sign of cultural decay. (laughs) Um, So I went to see a show by Susie Dent. She does Dictionary Corner on uh, Countdown. I don't know if any of this is meaningful to you. Countdown is a British television program with word challenges and number challenges, and she does the Dictionary Corner. Anyway, she did this show about language, and she talked about how people are often very concerned about it changing. And her thing was the word mischievous. People often pronounce as mischievous because they think it rhymes with devious, but it's actually mischievous. But more people probably say mischievous that it will probably just change the word, that kind of thing. Yeah. And this is one of the things that Professor Crystal talked about at length. The language is nature to change. It's not inherently good or bad. It's just change. It's not that the language is getting better or getting worse. Of course, there are prophets of doom out there. There always are, aren't there, who say, oh, all these changes on the internet, um, text messaging and things like that, it's a disaster for the language. Well, you know, I don't see that. And the evidence doesn't point to anything. All language does is it changes in response to 
social developments, technical developments, and what have you. doesn't change for the better, doesn't change for the worse. It just changes. So what has happened, and this always happens when a new technology comes in, the technology extends the options in a language, adds, if you like, to the expressive richness of the language. This is where things get interesting. You don't really notice this change unless you're living through it. Crystal notes that this has happened before many times. New technology usually means big changes in how we talk. So, for instance, when telephone communication came in 100 or so years ago, uh, there was a new type of auditory communication developing there quite quickly. When broadcasting came in in the 1920s, suddenly there were new options that weren't there before. You know the sort of thing I mean, sports commentary and news broadcasts. Nobody had ever heard anything like that before. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that's for sociologists and others to explore. But for linguists, it's simply a new array of options for communication. And so the internet has done the same thing, you see. Before the internet came along, there were no exchanges of the kind we now know from email and blogs and instant messaging and Twitter and YouTube and all of that. And each one of these new platforms has added a new set of possibilities, communicative possibilities. And with that goes new styles. That's perhaps the best way of putting it, a new style of communication. So I now have far more styles available to me to communicate with you than I had 20 or 30 years ago. I like what Professor Crystal says about styles. One thing I like to think about is how I was one of the last people in my friend group to get a smartphone. It was really something noticing how smartphones completely changed how my friends texted in a way that wasn't necessarily fun for me. They would all of a sudden speak in like more fragments. Oh, you mean like the like one line at a time thing with no yeah. punctuation? Yeah, I I think I do that. Like I'm in that habit because I'm not, I just, I don't feel able to write an entire paragraph with full stops in it in a text. Um, it just feels too formal to me and like the tone will upset people. And I get that on like Twitter as well. Like when I tweet, like I won't do an individual tweet for each part of a sentence, but I will try and find a way of tweeting without using punctuation or like capital letters because it just feels too formal if I try and do that. And like no one will, they'll think that I'm trying too hard or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're going to get to all this. Uh, Twitter is also a big one. If you're on Twitter a bunch, you might find yourself talking to others on Twitter in a way that you wouldn't elsewhere. And as it turns out, Twitter made some changes that influenced that. Twitter's a better example because Twitter has changed its, its strategy over the years. Twitter starts in 2006. And you'll remember that its prompt was, what are you doing? And so people would say what they were doing. You know, I am eating cornflakes or whatever it might be. You know, really important messages. <laughs> and, and so uh, it was all present tense and first person. And then in November 2009, Twitter changes its prompt and it becomes what's happening. So there was a sudden shift there towards a more neutral kind of language. And I thought that was going to stay because what's happening is still around. But no, I mean, you know, four or five years later, you get more developments on Twitter. The hashtag comes along and the hashtag was devised. Very nice idea as a classificatory device, you know. So if we're talking about Hamlet, then, then all the tweets relating to Hamlet can be gathered together under the same hashtag. Great idea. 
This is really funny, actually, because I don't think I ever use hashtags on Twitter. Like I use them on Instagram, you know, baking, like cookies, whatever, so that people who are just interested in baking can find them. But yeah, I never use hashtags on Twitter anymore. Yeah, I don't use them at all. Hashtags are interesting to me because I've always thought it was weird that such like a wonky tech-oriented device uh, became a thing that everyone knows about. It's just like this very like software engineer solution to a problem. And now like my parents know what hashtags are. Yeah, it is a software engineer solution. And it and it's a good one too. Like I've listened to entire podcasts about the invention of the Twitter hashtag and, and the problem that it solved and everything. But I think the reason they catch on is just because they're snappy and people, you know, you see especially older people using them in a way they're not really intended, like just using them to be like, to kind of illustrate a mood that is going alongside the thing that they're tweeting. Yeah, it's like a it's it's like an underline, right? In a in a way. And they're fascinating to think about because depending on where you stand, they're kind of corny to call attention to or overuse, but they're also still vital. And according to David, it's a huge shift in how we talk to each other online. And then suddenly people are saying, hashtag amazing, you know, <laughs> or hashtag cool or something like this. And I was very intrigued by that because it was a new kind of use here. It doesn't just mean I found this amazing. It means I found this amazing and I think you will as well. And so that's that's kind of related to what you were saying. They kind of turn statements into open letters. Like I said, I don't really use them, but the internet I'm used to is one where everything is kind of an open communication for anyone to see or respond to. And like, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, the wonders of technology often come at a price. And this is what makes Twitter such a good example for a lot of what we're talking about. It's a great petri dish for how small changes in language ripple outward and also a great case study in how everything can go wrong. Uh, Twitter is responsible for a lot of the ills of our modern world. And yet also, you know, a place that I rely on for my career. So you know, mixed feelings about our dependence on this one platform. Yep. So let's take a step back then. A lot of why Twitter is the way it is comes down to text messaging. It was built to accommodate the limitations of texting, another medium which has reinvented longstanding norms like the humble period. Do you use periods much? So we don't call um, the punctuation mark, we don't call it a period, we call it a full stop. That is so much better. Yeah. So the full stop, as we call it here in the UK, I tend not to use in texts or much in tweets if I can help it. In general, I just, it just feels formal and kind of cold and try hard and conveys a tone that I don't want to convey most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't use the full stop. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> much these days. And it turns out this is another huge thing that has changed a lot thanks to technology. I mean, what is the function of the period? It has two functions. One, it shows that a sentence has come to an end. And the other, it's there to separate sentences when they're in a sequence. Well, with short messaging of the kind that we're talking about, uh, you don't need to show the other person that a statement has come to an end because the screen does that for you. It's pretty obvious. And there's no need for a period to separate sentences because people are not talking in sequences of sentences. They're just talking sentence at a time, short stuff. That's what the medium's all about. Uh, people just instinctively decided, well, if the full stop, if the period hasn't got a function anymore, 
no point in using it, you see, so they dropped it. But once it is normal not to have a full stop or a period, then if you put one in, it has to mean something. And so you get contrasts like, Johnny's coming to the party tonight, no period, simply means Johnny's coming to the party tonight. But if you have, Johnny's coming to the party tonight, period, it means, oh dear, Johnny's coming to the party tonight, or something like that. It's kind of, you know, passive aggressive in some sort of way. This is the part that blows my mind, that no one teaches us to do this. It's very counter to how we start learning a language, very strictly with rules and grammar. I would disagree. I suppose it means whether you're talking about learning a second language or learning your own language for the first time. Because when babies learn to speak their primary language, they don't learn in terms of rules and grammar. They pick up on the way people around them are using things and they infer uh, meaning from context, which is exactly what happens here with the way people speak on the internet. You know, if you see everyone else tweeting with no capital letters and no punctuation, then you start doing it too. And you kind of get a feel of what that means because you know what the people who are talking that way are like. Um, and you get tone from kind of the, the context. So yeah, but I guess if you're learning a second language, then yeah, you do learn rules and grammar first, which to be honest, probably isn't the best way to learn a language. Oh God, it's miserable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm finding, um, I studied French for 10 years and yet I feel incapable of having a conversation with someone in French because I don't know conversational French. I know like school taught French. But like even when, you know, in this more intuitive way that we learn like our first languages, right? There is some stuff that you do have to learn when you're trying to get some more like nuanced or like descriptive expressions. Like on the internet, it would probably be emoticons or to a lesser extent, like emoji or certain abbreviations. And what's interesting about emoticons and you know, emoji in particular, is that they were supposed to do some things better than existing punctuation. Then things got complicated. Punctuation is a, is a pathetic substitute for uh, intonation and the like, which of course is what motivated smileys and emoticons and emojis in the first place. There was a great positive buzz when emoticons came along and smileys because people thought, oh, that'll solve the problem. Um, all I've got to do to show that I'm being happy or angry or subtle or ironic is put in the appropriate emoticon, you see, and then everybody will know what we mean and there won't be any problem at all. The emoticons are just as ambiguous as tones of voice are. You have to look at the context in order to interpret it. So it doesn't solve the problem, really, especially in a short messaging service where you haven't got time to amplify what you mean exactly, has a potential for being misunderstood. Has this ever happened to you where you make like a new acquaintance or a friend and they use an emoji uh, in a way that you've never seen before or just an emoji that you've never seen used and you're, you're just at a loss? I'm not sure if that has happened to me in particular. I mean, I'm sure it has, but I can't think of a specific example. But what I can think of is, so, and talking about different emoji having different um, illustrations on different devices, the one that's like bared teeth, um, I use to mean like, oh, yikes. Um, but some people think it's like a grinning smile. So like some friends that I have in other areas of my life, maybe who don't use the internet as much and who are a bit older, I'll be telling them something and they'll use the like bad teeth emoji to mean like, oh, that's great. But it looks like they're saying <laughs> yikes. So it's like, I don't know. Um, oh, hey, I've got some really good news. Like I just got this gig at doing so-and-so. And, and <laughs> it's like they're saying to me, oh, yikes. Um, but actually they mean, well done. I'm happy for you. 
Yeah, I used to think it was like a big smile, mm. and then I learned it doesn't <laughs> mean that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's very normal and quite possible to miss so much of like how these different emoji or expressions are are supposed to be used or or are widely used because so many conversations are happening at the same time, and you're not a part of all of them. You're not supposed to be, which is very different from like the old school uh, cultural influences on how we talk, right? Which were more openly and widely shared experiences. Um, this still happens, just faster. One of the things I noticed when coronavirus came along was how quickly people started to play with the words that were being introduced, you know, like, like lockdown, things like this, and invented new words, jocular words very often, um, played with the language, neologisms of all kinds. If you're in Scotland, you know, you'll be on a loch down because there are lochs in Scotland, you know, that sort of thing. Beautiful inventions of one kind or another, some of course pretty rude. The other thing the internet does is it spreads these novelties quicker than at any previous stage in linguistic history. This is where memes come from, of course. If you, if you like uh, a new expression, then suddenly it's out there on Twitter and everywhere else, or Urban Dictionary picks it up, and, and before you know where you are, it's getting thumbs up all over the place, and people are starting to use it, and eventually, maybe, it'll get into the standard dictionaries. So, yes, the internet has had that kind of effect, especially amongst younger people, but it does take a while, but it will happen. Yeah, right. Bean dad, the thing everyone's talking about at the moment. Words that have no meaning, except because of the meme, we all understand what it means. And here's where it all comes together. We've been talking a lot about the internet, right? And social media sites like Twitter, but we haven't necessarily been talking about where we're experiencing these things, our phones. So when we get back, is the biggest influence on your speech, your smartphone. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech, where we are talking about all of the ways the internet is slowly changing how we speak. We left off talking about phones, which are really tiny little language coaches bringing us new words, it seems. So in the first half of the show, we spoke to Professor David Crystal, who helped us understand how language works and the ways it changes. In this half, we're going to talk about why and how. And for that, we spoke to Gretchen McCulloch, a linguist and author of Because Internet understanding the new rules of language. One of the things Gretchen spoke to us about was something we briefly discussed earlier in the show. Remember how we were talking about the way people texted differently when they got smartphones? That's really important. There's an interesting sort of evolution there when text messages, because those phones, you know, kids might not realize, treated texts like they were emails. You'd go into your little inbox of texts and be like, oh, you know, I have three new unread text messages. I'm going to click on this one. I'm going to click on this one. I'm going to click on this one. And they were all sort of atomic. And so there was a lot of pressure. And some people's like phone plans charged them per text message, which is also heresy. So there's a lot of pressure to like fit your entire message into one text into that 140 characters. And then there was a period when some people had smartphones and some people didn't. And the smartphones treated text messages like chat like instant messages, where you have the sort of backward scrolling, continuous conversation. And that was a new paradigm for text message user interface, uh, which is kind of fun to realize that that change has happened. 
Yeah, uh, the the limit for text messages, I remember this. I remember them costing 10 pence each, although I was very lucky. I always had a contract. Um, I never had the kind of pay-as-you-go mobile phone SIM. But I guess the length limit is why people started using text speak, like the letter R instead of the word A-R-E and the letter U instead of the word Y-O-U, etc. Yeah, and it's it's very funny because this is... (laughs) like a financial and technological limitation that could just be completely thrown out of whack if you have one chatty friend, (laughs) right? (laughs) We all have one. (laughs) They're probably a podcast host. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, we're both that friend for someone else. (laughs) What's particularly remarkable to me is how a lot, some of this stuff just lingers, right? Even though the reason is long gone. Like we, we know that, we, you know, you can see that in how we text now, there's no limits anymore. But also Gretchen started talking about how some of the ways people make jokes on the internet today and how it's likely an extension of the way people started talking to each other in what we called MUDs. That's M-U-D. Um, it's an acronym. And want to break that one down for our listeners, Jordan? She's smiling real big. <laughs> So uh, MUDs were multi-user dungeons is what it stands for. Um, And it came from just, there was just one originally, one multi-user dungeon, and then they kind of spawned off to make more. Um, They're basically the predecessor to MMOs, um, except they were text-based. Yeah, they were one of the earliest forms of what we'd call like online gaming today. And as Gretchen tells us, people in them had developed fun new ways of talking to each other. It seems likely that MUDs were probably the origin of the thing that people do online still, which is this third-person self-narration. Because the whole point of MUDs was that you were narrating yourself moving through virtual space. Like they were a virtual dungeon or it would be like, this is a, like you have entered a living room. Uh, On the left wall is a painting by Picasso and a couch. On the right wall are two large windows and a potted fern or something like this. And so they had this very like, sort of text-based video game style of like, there are spaces here. And that was partly because people were trying to act out a story. But it's retained a bit of a fossilized aspect of it in the fact that we just talk about ourselves in the third person sometimes in sort of narrating what our actions are. Uh, And you can definitely trace it back to MUDs. I don't know if there's a, you know, probably earlier places where people were also doing third-person self-narration, but it it has some roots in MUDs for sure. Oh, right. So the thing where people put their actions between asterisks, uh, like when people, uh, when some when some drama is going down on Twitter or whatever, and people will put like, uh, sips tea or like grabs popcorn. Um, and it's kind of like, I, did, I don't know if it's still done between asterisks now. People probably just leave those out because you understand from context. But that was kind of how it was done back in the day with like online role playing. Yeah. Um, I think brackets are also used now online. So one of the things I wanted to ask Gretchen to tie together for us was just how much the way we spoke online bled into how we talk to one another out loud. Like we talked about earlier, I sometimes use internet lingo like ironically when I'm speaking, but I can't really tell you how much I use it reflexively in earnest. According to Gretchen, it comes down to the distinctions between written language and spoken language and also laziness. One of the reasons why language changes is to become more efficient. We're trying to conserve energy. Um, Our cave-dwelling ancestors would have been really proud of us for trying to conserve energy. So in the spoken domain, 
That efficiency often looks like running sounds together because you don't actually need to pronounce every single thing extremely precisely in order to be understood. And so it's more efficient if you can say things faster, um, let certain sounds drop or let certain sounds run into each other, and you can still get your message across. You've expended a tiny bit of effort. How do you make that more efficient? Uh, and what, what you can do is you can delete recoverable information. <laughs> uh, and so you can take that I do not know to I don't know. Uh, you can take it to I, d I don't know or dunno even, or uh, which is extremely efficient. Like, look at this compression algorithm. We've gotten from I do not know to uh, uh and we've just saved so many calories. And at this point, something cool can happen, right? Which is acronyms can change and become words into themselves. Like, again, to bring back LOL. LOL. <laughs> I love how you say it like a little meerkat just popping up. You it's know? because <laughs> it takes less energy than actually laughing sometimes. Yeah. Or sometimes if, you know, if someone is trying to be funny and I don't have the energy to actually find what they're saying entertaining, it's just like, it's like a way of getting them to stop. It's like punctuating their joke. Oh yeah. Lol. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that Gretchen has a lot to say about LOL as well, because we've used it a lot of ways, as you have demonstrated. <laughs> So in chapter three, I talk about LOL and LOL and how it's evolved and how nobody's really laughing when they say uh, LOL anymore. And there's a story of a kid who like finds out that LOL is supposed to stand for laughing out loud. He's like, no, no, it doesn't. Nobody's actually laughing. Like, it just means LOL. So, uh, yeah, one of the things that I did was in that chapter, I talk about sort of generational splits and how some people still use it literally and some people use it kind of aspirationally. Like, maybe I would be laughing or I'd like to think, I'd like you to think that maybe I'm laughing, but I'm not actually laughing because uh, I'm trying to be, you know, polite and a supportive friend, but your joke was not that funny. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of very nice of us, really. <laughs> when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about the generational gaps that Gretchen mentioned. When we left off, Gretchen was explaining to us how no one is laughing when we use LOL anymore. How do you feel about that, Jordan? I understand completely what Gretchen is saying here. From the original, you know, that, the older, older, older generations, like people who are maybe 60, 70 plus, who think that it means lots of love because they just never absorbed the, the true meaning or whatever, to people who are, I guess, a decade or so older than us, who still use it strictly to be representative of laughing out loud and will only use it when they are actually laughing out loud, um, to, yeah, younger people who don't know that it's supposed to mean anything else and it just means lol. Like my my younger brother will definitely say lol out loud to mean a certain kind of semi-sarcastic laughing or kind of lazy, not actually laughing. So yeah, lots of different meanings. No, and this also reminds me again uh, of my brother that I mentioned earlier. He, uh, he He's making fun of me all the time for this stuff. Like last week, literally last week, he called my fiance, called her <laughs> to complain about how I never use emoji. It's, it's funny with him because he doesn't actually, like, he will, he will FaceTime you all the time. Even if he doesn't want to look at your face. Like, literally, he'll FaceTime me and leave his phone on the table. What? <laughs> oh, kids. This is also, you know, how the technology is used, as well as how, it's, how we speak on it. But according to Gretchen, how technology changes your language and use of it is also largely determined by the kind of life you lead and the ways that life intersects with technology, as we were talking about. 
There isn't just one internet writing. There isn't just one internet language. It's age-bound, very age-bound, and it's also influenced by, like, what your first social platforms were. You know, did you start out um, and go right on, like, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and, and TikTok or something? Or have you been, like, kicking around on IRC and MUDs and Moose? And even if you're a similar age, you have very different experiences of what the internet is like for you. And in whatever subculture you find yourself in, there are going to be in-jokes and things like that. I brought up one to Gretchen, the phrase, you know, you love to see it. Has, has that been big on British Twitter or are you just aware of us Americans? See, that's the thing, right? There's no such thing as British Twitter because like, how, how would it be possible for me to only follow British people? I guess there's like the time of day before all the Americans get up and I don't know if you love to see it is used as much there, but I definitely see it on my Twitter anyway. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. I'm thinking about like the golden few hours that no Americans are awake on online. <laughs> There's no point tweeting anything. Like, who's going to see it? It's just people complaining about our government and like the latest bad decisions they've made. <laughs> and and these are sort of like these like in jokes and, and are, are kind of like the building blocks of what we call memes, right? Which is sort of like, short, digestible jokes and ideas that can be repeated to, you know, have an idea expressed through a culture. And Gretchen talks to us a little bit about this. One of the ways that I think is helpful to sort of contextualize memes is to think of them as in-jokes, but rendered in a more permanent or semi-permanent or shareable form. Because a lot of in-jokes exist in a particular family or a particular group of friends or community or profession. Um, and they sort of exist at this sort of oral literature level where like, you know, sometimes you like join a group of friends and they've all been friends with each other since they were like 16. Uh, and you're like, oh, okay, hi. And someone's like, oh yeah, you just did a mic. And like, oh, you did a mic. You're like, who's Mike? And why have I just done one? And they all know this because sometime like 10 years ago, <laughs> like someone, Mike did something, <laughs> whoever Mike is. Uh, and they've got this sort of shared cultural knowledge. Memes refer to the specifically internetish incarnation, but if we look at it as sort of a cultural item or a cultural unit or a cultural catchphrase, an in-joke, a reference to things, it has a whole bunch of precedent. Like, one Shakespeare play in particular, Love's Labor's Lost, which is not performed very much these days because it's kind of weird. And the reason it's kind of weird is it is chock full of Shakespearean era in-jokes that people at the time thought were hilarious. And we don't even know what some of the original in-jokes were because we have, we've lost the original joke. We've only maintained this like weird line in Love's Labor's Lost. You're like, I guess this must have been an in-joke because I don't understand it. Yeah, this kind of thing is when I realized that I would never be able to pursue English literature because it was, I think it was T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and my teacher basically just being like, every line in this is a reference to some other literary work or artwork that was popular at the time. And you have to understand the context of those to understand the poem. And I was like, well, that sounds like a big old waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather do anything else. Yeah. And, and that makes, <laughs> that's also something I want to call back to that she also said, which is sort of like all about conserving energy and how we communicate and understand each other, because I feel that, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're lazy. Like, I'm lazy. And laziness is also a word that we're using out of out of cheek a bit, right? Like, it's quite literally what we are. But as both David earlier and Gretchen now note, there are a lot of naysayers who use the term a little more earnestly and point to it as a sign of, like, moral or cultural decay. Yeah, I've definitely heard that argument with things like text speak, right? Like, 
people of an older generation feigning outrage because supposedly younger people can't even be bothered to learn how to spell the word Y-O-U. They're just using the letter U. And, you know, what's going to happen to our society if no one bothers to learn how to spell full <laughs> words? <laughs> yeah. um, probably we'll be fine. But again, like, it's hard for anybody to have this perspective because, like, David Crystal said in the first half, we're experiencing such a small blip in the history of our language, right? It's impossible to know what changes are lasting and what's just slang. And, you know, as we were talking about, slang has similarly scoldy connotations. Well, slang is change in a language. Sometimes we use change in a language as a way to sort of get around some of the negative connotations that the word slang has. Like, linguists think slang is great. Linguists think language change is great. There's no problem there. Um, the problem comes with people kind of being old and crotchety and being, rah, 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 get off my lawn. Both Gretchen and David call these folks doomsayers, and Gretchen explains. It's really funny because you can look back and you can find doomsayers about all sorts of different technology. Mark Twain has this screed against the telephone where he finds it like incredibly annoying. He was also one of the first people who get a telephone in the U.S., so like I don't know. He had a bit of hypocrisy there, but he found it like disturbing to hear only half of a conversation. He really hated it. There are people who had rants about like the automobile and how it was like unnatural to travel at speeds at like 60 miles an hour and like your organs were going to shift. Um, there are complaints about the telegraph and like enabling young people to like talk to each other without chaperonage. There are complaints about the printing press. There are complaints about the invention of writing itself because like back in the day, uh, you know, in an oral culture, people memorized a lot of stuff and they trained their memory to be able to memorize ancient poems and, and literature and they had all these memorization techniques. And uh, Socrates is quoted by Plato as saying that the invention of writing would introduce forgetfulness into men's souls <laughs> uh, because they wouldn't know how to, like, memorize things properly anymore. Uh, and, you know, possibly this is why, like, Plato wrote things down, but Socrates didn't, because Plato was like, I gotta write this down. There are lots of ways of being anxious about technology, and there are, like, there are real negative effects of technology, you know, like, climate change is real and it's a problem, guys. Um, but language changing is not a problem. I love talking to both Gretchen and David a lot. They were very fun and generous interviews. Is this something that you have to remind yourself to be conscious of, right? To be sort of like very sanguine about like changes in language that you're not familiar with or slang that you're not aware of. Like I mentioned poggers up top and I never really defined it. <laughs> what does poggers mean? So basically it's the name of a Twitch emote that is uh, just Pepe the Frog making like a surprised expression. Now, Pepe the Frog's a very loaded image right now, uh, politically in the United States, unfortunately, and, and, and strangely because it's so odd. But the frog is making this surprise expression that comes from another Twitch emote, one of the earliest called PogChamp, where uh, a streamer is making the same surprise expression. And funny thing, PogChamp does not exist on Twitch anymore as of like yesterday uh, when we're recording this. Because the streamer that Emote is based on, kind of a virulent conspiracy theorist who uh, no one wants to associate with anymore. So a problematic image of a problematic person. Yes, which then was cartooned and with a problematic cartoon. But yeah, it helps when you know where things come from. Definitely worth doing your research. One thing I've learned from Susie Dent, um, who does Dictionary Corner on Countdown here in the UK, um, is that 
it can be very difficult to trace the origins of certain words that are from, you know, decades and centuries ago. But I guess one good thing about the internet slang is that, as you've just demonstrated, you can literally kind of comb back over the archived examples of things to find the original use of the word and and have like a detailed story of how it came to be, which is really interesting. It's also possible to not trace, you know, phrases back far enough and to use them sort of like, you know, insensitively or just uh, in an offensive way. Every part of language, like everything else that you come across online, comes from somewhere. And usually it's best to understand that history as best as you possibly can before you adopt anything yourself. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of slang that comes from places that you might not realize that are actually really offensive. It's good to know about that kind of stuff. Like, I'm not saying you have to go and look up every single word in your vocabulary in the dictionary to check that it's okay, because let's face it, if you speak English, (laughs) uh, probably not. Um, (laughs) But yeah, go and check out, like, you know, check out The Allusionist um, by Helen Zaltzman. She talks about this kind of thing a lot. And with slang especially, especially, I guess, new-ish slang, like maybe do a little bit of background research before you start throwing that word around everywhere. Do you find yourself adopting a different like sort of like posture when you talk online? Because like, because I will probably speak in a way like now with my friends in person that I wouldn't necessarily speak online. It's not that I'm like throwing slurs around or anything like that. It's, it's more like, you know, I have like idioms that I use um, that, you know, some of which I'm legitimately trying to, to not use anymore, like crazy, where it's just sort of like, that's, there are people advocating for that word to be sort of like filtered out because it's, it's an ableist word. That's probably a poor example because like, I guess the, the hope is eventually I'll just stop saying that word. But like, I'm sure there are ones that are like less offensive, but like maybe are regional in ways that don't travel, you know? Yeah. I mean, so I don't know about using words that I'm trying not to use offline versus online. I definitely feel like I have an online voice that I don't use when I speak with my friends. Like the way I tweet is probably not the way I talk, but I have been making a conscious effort to not use the word crazy to mean like outrageous or whatever. (laughs) Do you know what word I use instead of crazy usually? uh, Wild. It's wild. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And uh, that's how the podcast got its name. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how this episode should end. (laughs) Still us being like, it's wild. (laughs) Next time on Wild Wild Tech, we'll talk about sex bots. Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast and a spoke media production. It's hosted by me, Josh Rivera, and Jordan Erica Weber. You can find us at jmrivera02 on Twitter and at jordanweber.com. Our producers are Cody Hoffmachel and Janiel Kastner, with help from Reyes Mendoza and Trey Jones. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seeley for Studio 71, and Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. Special thanks to our guests David Crystal and Gretchen McCulloch. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Wild Wild Tech Pod. Thanks for listening. He's Welsh. Oh, okay. Oh, I can there do Welsh. Go. Oh, yes. um. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>